Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us for Abortion Hurts, Not Helps, Women Speak Out. Please welcome our host, Melanie Israel, Policy Analyst in Heritage DeVos Center. All right. Well, thank you so, so much to everyone who is able to join us here today. Um, we are going to be having a wonderful, wonderful conversation with our distinguished panelist. Um, to kick things off, I want to go ahead and introduce you to Teresa Collette. She is a professor at the University of St. Thomas School of Law, where she serves as director of the school's pro-life center. She received her doctorate at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. Um, as a well-known advocate for the protection of human life and the family, she specializes in the subjects of marriage, religion, and bioethics in her research. She's published numerous legal articles and has provided expert testimony before committees in the United States Senate, the House of Representatives, and in state legislatures. Lawmakers and medical groups have relied on her to help them defend policies, including the federal partial birth abortion ban and a parental involvement law regarding abortions for minors. She's often asked to represent the interests of government officials before federal appellate courts. She served as a special attorney general for the states of Oklahoma and Kansas, as well as assisting other state attorneys general in defending laws protecting human life and marriage. And before joining St. Thomas in 2003, she taught at South Texas College of Law. Now, most recently, what's prompting our conversation today, she has helped spearhead um, an amicus brief to the Supreme Court that rejects the false notion that abortion advances the interests of women um, and calls on them to overrule Roe v. Wade and subsequent abortion cases. Um, so, Teresa, thank you so, so much for being with us today. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this important topic. Wonderful. Now, I, I want to kind of set the stage before we begin this conversation. Um, I, I think it goes without saying in some ways, but let's go ahead and get into it. Um, why exactly are we here today? Um, we're here today having this conversation because on December 1st, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing oral arguments in a major abortion case. It's called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Um, and there's one question before the court, one question only, and that is, are state prohibitions on pre-viability abortion bans unconstitutional? That is, are state laws that prohibit abortions before children can survive outside the womb unconstitutional? And for the first time in nearly half a century, the court is going to give an answer to that question. And so the stakes are high and policymakers at the state and federal level know that. Um, and we'll get into some of what that other policy making right now looks like. Um, but I, I want to go ahead and kind of kick it over to you, Teresa, as we're setting the stage. Let's talk a little bit about what the current abortion jurisprudence in the United States looks like. Um, and then let's also define some of the key terms that we're going to be talking about today. What is a reliance interest? What do we mean when we talk about things like women's social and economic advancement? 
both of those are key to understanding the current jurisprudence. The reliance interest that the court has historically looked at is where people have made investments, uh, acquired property related to a set of laws. So, for example, think about some of the problems that foreign nations have in getting investment in their countries because the state may confiscate all of the property of American investors. And so it's that sort of idea that the law needs to be stable to encourage investment, to encourage people to actually act in reliance on it. What's different about the reliance factor in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, two of the critical cases uh, before the court in answering the Dobbs question, if you will, is that they went from individuals, I as an individual have relied on the fact that this property can be used uh, as a gas station in my neighborhood. And if the city zoning comes back and says, no, 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 now it can only be used for housing, I get to continue to operate my business. That's a reliance interest. But the court in Planned Parenthood versus Casey expanded that beyond the individual who had actually made some investment or acted in a way that would be harmed if the law changed to some sort of vague societal investment, uh, some sort of vague societal reliance, and specifically the statement where they said that women had, uh, that men and women have ordered their lives in reliance upon the availability of abortion should contraception fail. Now, we can talk about that a little bit later in the uh, conversation, but it's important to note that they had absolutely zero evidence on that <laughs> issue uh, before the court. And what's really odd is they were talking prospectively. So cities change zoning all the time on land. And that doesn't protect people who were maybe thinking about buying land in the future from being able to use it in an old way. Here, they're saying prospectively that because people in the past have relied on abortion, if contraception fails, they must be allowed to continue to rely on abortion in perpetuity. And, and that's just not a legal concept that we find anywhere else. As far as advancement of women, uh, Typically, uh, there's an international index of uh, developed nations uh, that use things like uh, higher education degrees, uh, business ownership, the ability to participate fully in all trades and professions, uh, equal pay for equal work. Those sorts of criteria are what we're talking about, things that are measurable. Uh, in the Supreme Court, not only was our brief uh, before the court, is before the court, but there was a brief by women state legislators as well. And so women's ability to hold political office, those sorts of measurable outcomes that have changed over the past hundred years. So those are the two things that um, we're talking about primarily in the Dobbs case. And of course, the Dobbs case will require the court to go back and reevaluate Roe versus Wade, which everyone knows the phrase Roe versus Wade, but surveys have indicated that most people don't really understand the opinion itself uh, if they haven't been to law school, in that while the court said it wasn't supposed to be an absolute right to abortion throughout the pregnancy and under any set of circumstances, Simultaneous with Roe, they also handed down an opinion called Dobie Bolton that doesn't get talked about in the public square nearly as much. In Dobie Bolton, what the court said 
is yes, there can be a limitation on abortion at the point of liability, even going to the point of prohibiting it. But if you choose to prohibit it, you must include what they call a health exception. But in defining that, they included psychological health, economic health, familial status. Basically, it's the exception that swallows the rule. So while the Roe court said no regulation the first trimester, regulation to protect the woman's health, the second trimester, for example, must be performed by a licensed physician, um, third trimester, post-viability, you can prohibit, but only if you have this huge exception that abortion providers have even said that anytime a woman's upset with her pregnancy, that's psychological distress, therefore it qualifies for the health exception. 20 years later, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the other big case, the case where the court made this reliance uh, art argument, although courts don't argue they decide, but their decision was grounded on this reliance factor. Um, the, the three judges that wrote the controlling opinion said, if Roe were to come before us for the first time today, some of us would not have created the right to abortion. So in other words, they conceded there was no constitutional basis for it <laughs> at the time of Roe. But women and men have come to rely on abortion in this way. And then the second big argument they made was, and because people continue to protest it, we can't possibly overrule it because then it would look like we were overruling under fire. Well, your honors, <laughs> the reality is whichever way you go, people are going to think it's a political opinion. <laughs> you don't avoid it. And the reliance factor is really the focus of our brief. So I, I want to um, talk a little bit more specifically about this brief. Um, and again, for our um, audience here on the webinar, this is an amicus brief that um, Teresa and some other scholars have organized with hundreds of pro-life women, um, professionals, um, and other organizations specifically about this Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case. So, Teresa, can you tell us a little bit more about this brief? Why did you file it? Um, and maybe give us a little bit of a profile of some of the different individuals and organizations who joined on. So, it's clear in Planned Parenthood versus Casey that at least the three justices writing the controlling opinion sincerely believed with no evidence, but nonetheless sincerely believed that abortion was a precondition to women's equality, an argument that uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, who subsequently joined the court, made numerous times that, it, that women cannot succeed in American society unless they have the ability to terminate their pregnancies, as the court says, or kill their unborn children, as the physical reality is. And that premise has been offensive since they articulated it. And what's really interesting in that is that they give one citation and that's it, no evidence, but they do say, well, there's this scholar's book that says this. And then you go to read the book and that's not at all what the woman says. In fact, she says, I can't prove causation between abortion and women's continuing success in the public square. And so the three of us, um, Alan Alvare, Professor Alvare, and uh, Erica Bacchiacci, 
um, who has got a great new book out on the history of the women's movement, um, we were talking and, and really felt like if that's the basis of continuing this unlimited right to abortion that we have in this country, we really need to establish for the court that that's just false, that they just were gravely mistaken in that. And so we began looking at the actual data. And of course, since Roe versus Wade, uh, the trial court opinion was issued 51 years ago. So we've got half a century worth of data to see, is there a correlation between the availability and use of abortion and women's success as measured by these particular criteria, ownership in business, college degrees, income, et cetera, et cetera. And unsurprisingly, the answer to that is no, there's not. Well, if there's not a correlation, there can't even be cause, there certainly can't be causation. And so we wanted to get this data before the court. And we were thinking that we weren't the only women who really kind of find it offensive and troubling that the whole premise is that we can't succeed at both having families and having careers. And so we thought the lesson of Roe versus Wade has really been inimical to our ability to create a work culture where women are respected as women, where families are understood to be an important responsibility of every employee and every employer. And so we wanted to make the case to the court. And the more we talked to some of our friends, other women scholars and professional women, the more we found a different type of Me Too <laughs> movement, if you will, that we all feel deeply um, offended by this idea that we have to have some sort of male reproductive life to be successful. And that we really think it's impeded our ability to reform uh, the workplace in ways that are important for healthy families, both for men and for women. And so that's the brief we wrote. And as we talked about it with others, more women said, well, I'd like to, I'd like to have that said on my behalf. And in the end, we ended up with 240 women, all of whom have what we call terminal degrees, PhDs, JDs, MDs, uh, from universities throughout the country, Harvard, uh, Oregon, from Georgia, Minnesota, Texas, Virginia, uh, California, uh, all sorts of different schools, all with terminal degrees, um, and as including the governor of South Dakota, Christy No. Um, and then we had some pro-life feminist organizations who've been making this argument for at least 20 years, if not longer. Um, and so, uh, feminist uh, that uh, feminist choosing life in New York was a client of ours. Uh, women uh, against violence, women affirming life. Uh, these are all organizations of women who say that the solution to any inequality in society does not lie in giving us the right to have a sterile life. It lies in building a culture that recognizes there's more to life than economic productivity. That's so powerful, looking through just the, the list of these names and organizations um, to see that 
such a wide range of people are all telling the court the same thing. People who are um, maybe deeply religious or people who are atheist or agnostic, um, people who maybe fall on the right end of the political spectrum or people who fall on the left end of the political spectrum. Um, it, it's so powerful that you've been able to pull together such a broad coalition making this argument about women and their success in American life. Um, I, I wanted to dive in just a little bit more because you had mentioned that the court basically looked to one single author whose work didn't even make the argument that the court said that she was making. Can, can you explain just a little bit more about that? Because that seemed like such a glaring, glaring problem. Well, they, they cite a book about women's advancement in society. And in that particular book, uh, the author says that there are lots of things that contribute to women's growing ability to uh, participate equally, including things like legislation, things like uh, case law, things like changing cultural norms and expectations about our social roles in society. And so in that instance, she herself says that abortion is really more a product of these changes than a cause of these changes. And in that case, then the court turning it into something that uh, it really wasn't, uh, they inverted it, right? Um, she says that um, abortion uh, is due more to women's changing economic and social status and not the cause of it. Now, that's problematic that for whatever reason, women seem to think that they need abortion as they become freer and freer in society. But that's a very different claim than women need it to become free in society, to become equal in society. And what's particularly interesting is there was no evidence or even any claim of this at the district court level. And the trial court, of course, as you know, is where the actual facts are supposed to be developed. That's where the evidence is brought in. It's not at the appellate level. In fact, there's a rule about introducing new evidence at the appellate level, that rule being don't do it, right? And so it's an important thing to note that the trial court didn't hear any argument on this, didn't have any evidence on this. And uh, certainly this professor's book wasn't evidenced by the opinion itself at the trial court level. It's something that in all likelihood a very clever law clerk to one of the justices <laughs> found uh, and decided it would provide an adequate basis for sustaining Roe. Remember, when they had their initial conference after hearing oral arguments in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, Chief Justice Rehnquist had reason to believe that Justice Kennedy would side with those who wanted to overturn Roe and that Roe was going to be overturned. And Chief Justice Kennedy during that conference actually expressed his willingness to side in overturning Roe. And it was only after uh, conversations, particularly with Justice O'Connor, that that changed. Um, and there was the women's reliance interest that they, that they use as justification. 
education, and there was sort of the institutional reputation interest that they relied on. Again, they did not want to be seen as uh, overruling under fire. Um, you know, it it's really troubling, and as one scholar has noted, that the court's reputation isn't because they're worried about their reputation. It's because of what they actually do. <laughs> and if there is no constitutional basis for Roe, which there doesn't appear to be, then they need to overrule it, just like they did Plessy versus Ferguson, a Supreme Court case that found that separate but equal was constitutional. Took a long time to overturn it with Brown versus Board of Education, but we got there eventually, and we're hopeful that Dobbs will be our Brown versus Board of Education. So I think one of the things that's so powerful about your brief is that you're not relying on anecdotes or claims that don't really have any proof. Um, you, you really have a lot of data to back up what you're saying. And so I, I want to dive into some of that for our audience today. Um, first of all, your brief discusses the fact that while women certainly were making social progress in the years following Roe, a better way of saying that would probably be women continued to make progress in the years following Roe, because there was a lot of progress being made long before Roe v. Wade. So can you tell us a little bit more about what those advancements were looking like prior to Roe v. Wade in 1973? Sure. In the late uh, 1800s, we had our first woman U.S. Senator. Uh, in between that time till pre-Roe, uh, we had numerous other women join her, join them in Congress. We had our first cabinet member. Interestingly enough, the Department of Labor was, Secretary of Labor was a woman. We had uh, in Texas under an odd set of circumstances, but nonetheless, we had our first all-woman Supreme Court in a state. Um, the men were disqualified because they were members of the club that was a litigant. But nonetheless, we had women sitting on benches. We had women uh, as professors, we had women as doctors, we had women as lawyers, uh, we had women elected as governors of states, all pre-Roe. We had women uh, advancing in the workplace. And frankly, a good portion of the advances in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, or at least uh, in the 1960s, et cetera, uh, was because of legislative efforts, and they were passed through the efforts of women, things like the Equal Pay Act, things like Title VII, avoiding discrimination in the workplace and in education and in other areas of life. Um, there were Supreme Court cases that uh, struck down a variety of things, like firing school teachers because they were pregnant, not because they weren't capable of doing their job during that time period. There were a number of advances culturally that were being made, women's right to vote. All of those things were important in creating the expectation that women could actually do the job. Frankly, during that period of World War II, Rosie the Riveter probably has contributed more to women's advancement. Well, there's no question, has contributed more to women's advancement than abortion. Uh, the reality is 
the societal recognition that, gosh, women can be pilots too. Women can actually drive trucks too. Women can manage big companies and manage manufacturing plants. Women can do all the things that we needed to do because our men were overseas fighting for freedom. So that change was huge. And the more that women were perceived as capable and competent, and the more they proved to be capable and competent, the more the opportunities came to them. There's some interesting uh, conversation now going on among feminist scholars, sadly not so much in the academy because there's only one type of feminism generally uh, there, but in the larger culture among independent scholars about what some of us think was an unholy union with the women's rights movement and the sexual revolution. Um, and that's an important thing to know. Um, you know, Plan, uh, the Playboy Foundation gave the American Law Institute an award for advancing sexual liberty. Uh, sexual liberty is different than women's ability to, to enter the professions of their choice, to be doctors or lawyers or truck drivers or carpenters. And so there's a real reevaluation of what that has meant to women in lots of different areas of their life. And I want to kind of get into that too, because it's it's really interesting to to flip the question. Um, be before we do, though, I want to touch on one other point that you had raised in your brief, and that's, um, you know, we we have from the CDC numbers about annual abortions across the country. And unfortunately, the data is not entirely complete because some states don't report data and each state kind of has its own way of collecting data. Um, but as far as a federal source goes, it's the best we've got. Um, and so what we do have is that we can see looking at you know, 1973 onward that following Roe, abortion rates and ratios climbed, but then they saw a very dramatic decline. Um, and in fact, we're, we're seeing some of the fewest numbers of abortions nationwide that we've seen in many years. And that's a very encouraging long-term trend. So during this very long-term trend of declining abortion rates, um, is it true that women's progress still continued? How, how do we reconcile those two things if abortion is so central to women's advancement, yet fewer and fewer abortions are happening? And yet more and more women are going to law school and med school, owning their own business, uh, particularly women of color and small business ownership has just exploded during this declining period of abortions. So that, again, is the crux of our argument, that if, in fact, the three justices writing the plurality opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey were correct, if it is a necessary condition to women's advancement, we ought to see a consistent correlation. As abortion increases, women's access to these economic opportunities ought to expand. But that's not what we see at all. There are occasional years where there is a correlation, arguably. Uh, but that's like saying that all apples are red, a false premise to start with, and therefore this red object must be an apple. No, 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 right? It's a rubber ball, or it's the clown's nose, or it's a rose, or 
So it's just a basic principle of logic. I apologize about the phone call in the background. It's just the reality of Zoom nowadays. It um, is. And what's even worse is it's spam. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but what we see, right, is we see women's abortion rights, which is that sort of orange looking line that your viewers can see. While we also see women, as that orange line goes down, women continue to come to college. In fact, it, we have more women in law schools and med schools than we do men today. Um, and as far as college, women are more likely to have a bachelor's degree than a man is now. Um, we also see total women in the workforce, again, growing, although the pandemic has impacted that some, but that's completely independent of the availability of abortion. It's things like schools not being open, <laughs> et cetera. Uh, and then you see the number of women in the workforce with degrees. All of these things show us that abortion is an independent variable. It's a basic analysis. Um, and frankly, the amicus briefs on the other side don't really deal with it. <laughs> they simply say, you know, it's true because the court said it was true. That's not the way American lawsuits work. <laughs> the court doesn't get to say what the facts are beyond the evidence. And the evidence is pretty clear. And one of the other things that you bring up in your brief is let's flip this question um, completely on its head. Um, is there evidence that abortion has actually harmed women and hindered women's progress rather than the opposite that abortion advocates are claiming? Well, for example, we have a federal law, which I think is a very good law, but tragic that we need it, which is the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. In fact, one of the most popular programs we do at the Pro-Life Center every couple of years at the law school is a program about pregnancy discrimination so that our students can know what their rights are in this instance. That law has been on the books, um, but... Just three years ago, the New York Times did a huge expose on the amount of pregnancy discrimination out in the workplace. And you have major law firms who know better, who are defendants in lawsuits by their women associates and even some of their junior partners that say that when they get back from pregnancy leave or maternity leave, what happens is that nobody gives them uh, the opportunity with the big cases, that they are, in fact, put in a position where they can't do their job because there's an expectation that they're not available to do their job. Now, that expectation isn't true of men, and yet because we have promulgated this idea that the ideal worker is this sterile, male, reproductive life, we, we can't imagine that women can successfully balance both life and uh, the, their work life and their family life. Uh, you have the Nike Corporation that put women athletes on unpaid leave when they became pregnant. Now, thankfully, at the most recent Summer Olympics, you saw some of these amazing women athletes running that were clearly carrying their babies inside their wombs, not in their arms as they were running and winning. So there's all sorts of discrimination because we haven't been able to persuade the culture that pregnancy isn't a barrier. The Supreme Court said it was. 
but it shouldn't be. And we should be working to overcome that, not to overcome the reality of women's bodies. It's really frustrating. One of the other things <laughs> that you talk about, right. So w- one of the other things that you talk about in your brief is things like the feminization of poverty, um, the, the choices that women are making that aren't necessarily reflecting what they would like to do. Um, things like not having as many children as they would perhaps like to have. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the choices that women are making to order and plan their lives that don't necessarily align with what they would want to do? Well, and we certainly don't make the argument that we can show causation with abortion. We're very careful about that because, again, there are lots of confounding variables, as the statisticians say. There are lots of other things that go into those decisions. Um, But it is interesting that consistently, both here and in Western Europe, surveys done of women uh, at the end of their reproductive lives typically show that women have on average, one less child than they would wish they had had. And and that's an interesting phenomena. And part of the question is why? Is it economics? Is it uh, the absence of a permanent partner in their life? Is it, there are all sorts of things that can go into that. Is it their health? Um, with women waiting later and later in life to bear their first child, um, is it simply biology? in that instance. There are lots of questions surrounding it, and we don't really know the answer to it, but we know that that's a reality. We know that women's happiness, the measures of happiness that we see, and there's actually a world happiness index among other data that they collect, um, has declined during these periods. Now, is that, does it correlate with the availability of abortion? Not necessarily um, consistently, um, but it is an interesting phenomena. If abortion is supposed to be this cure-all for women in society to be well-respected and to achieve their desires, well, you know, it hadn't worked out so well. We also look at the fact that uh, men, just like women, uh, too, desire a permanent loving relationship. And there's been a real decline in those sorts of partnerships, whether we call them marriage or whether they're partnerships. In many European countries, they are partnerships rather than marriage. But there's been a decline in general happiness of women, while men's happiness has continued to either remain the same or increase. Why is that? Um, You probably are too young to remember the... uh, cigarette ad with the woman who was in her high heels carrying her briefcase in one hand and her skillet in another and she's swinging her skillet and saying you know i can do it all i can bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan (laughs) okay (laughs) i try to communicate to my women students that they probably can have pretty much everything they want but in sequence not simultaneously. <laughs> you can't be getting a really good night's sleep and working on a brief overnight. <laughs> you can't do it all at the same moment. And so, you know, why why do we have this image that women need to do that, should do that? And frankly, it's one of the few blessings of COVID is I think people are reevaluating that. 
Mm-hmm. It's some very, very interesting points that you raise in your brief. And again, to acknowledge you are not suggesting causation. Um, you are raising these questions of, wait a minute, we've disproven these wild claims about, um, you know, supposedly all of these things that abortion has helped with. Let's look at some of these other problems that are still going on. Why is that continuing to happen? And I think you make a really, really powerful um, argument there. And I want to make sure we have a little bit of time for some questions from our audience here. Um, If you're listening here today on our webinar and you have a question, um, please drop that into the chat. We've got um, a couple minutes here to be able to try to get to some questions. Um, One of the questions that I see here from one of our listeners Simple question, um, what resources could you recommend for the common person to make these arguments in the public square about women's equality? Um, Of course, many viewers with us today are are not lawyers. I myself am not a lawyer. And so um, how do we kind of break out of maybe some of the, the legalese that's going on with these court cases and talk about this in the public square to wide audiences? Well, many our organizational clients actually have some nice resources on their website. So, for example, Feminist Choosing Life of New York has some uh, summaries of short arguments. They're one or two pages, very much like the Heritage uh, background. Well, the backgrounders are longer. You all produce so many wonderful resources. (laughs) (laughs) The resources are wonderful. But many of our our clients, uh, Women Affirming Life has some of that material as well. So if you're looking for something just short... And, and Erica's new book uh, is very, very good. I apologize, the name escapes me, but um, perhaps we can uh, post it at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but Erica's new book is a really interesting uh, analysis of how uh, women's roles have changed over the time and what the early feminists wanted and what those who at least embrace the feminist title Honestly, that was one of the biggest problems is so many of our women professionals, um, that title has become associated with so many uh, things that are negative that they're concerned about it. Um, But the reality is I do believe uh, that women should be treated equally in society. Um, So Erica's work is really, really good. If you just uh, Google her name, Uh, she can provide, and let me give the spelling, or perhaps we can put it in uh, one of the chat boxes or something, but it's B-A-C-H-I-O-C-H-I. And if you Google her, she's got some short articles, which are really helpful too on this that that I think you'll find very interesting. Um, Marie Combe is also Uh, a woman who writes both for the public as well as for other legal scholars. And she's done some very nice work in this area. Um, For those who are interested, not in the legal, but there's a wonderful series uh, that is called The Concept of Woman. Um, And it goes from ancient times to contemporary times in a four or five volume set. But it's absolutely superb. Uh, it's it. 
I learned all sorts of things, like when people talk about women in the Middle Ages being oppressed, well, it was more a status thing. When the Lord of the Manor rode out with his men at arms, it was the Lady of the Manor who ran the place at that point. And so there's a lot of interesting historical information. Uh, and so that's just a tremendous book. And then, of course, my good friend, Helen Alvarez, who was also uh co-author of the brief. Uh, Helen has done a lot of public writing on this and is uh, just a prolific scholar, but also has a lot of things for the ordinary public. So those are books on the, the women's argument. Um, I really also would recommend, if people really want to understand how Roe came about, a book by my friend Clark Forsyth uh, called Abuse of Discretion. It is a wonderful book where you learn surprising things like the fact that the case that went before the Supreme Court wasn't even supposed to be about abortion. It was supposed to be about a technical, legal, procedural question. Um, and it's a very readable book. It's an excellent book. And then, of course, the history of the law of abortion, Joseph Delapina has the best book in the area. Um, but his brief in the Supreme Court would be worth reading because it gives you a much shorter version of it instead of reading his thousand-page tome. <laughs> As a non-lawyer, I'm always a fan of the resources that are accessible to non-lawyers. Um, and I have read Mark Forsyth's book, Abuse of Discretion, and I can attest to the fact that it is um, very, very accessible. Um, Somebody else in the chat has flagged that we um, brought up very, very briefly at the beginning the Women's Health Protection Act, which passed in the House um, just a short time ago, and senators are calling for it to receive a vote in the Senate as well, um, and wanted us to, to kind of revisit that because we brought it up at the beginning and said we'd come back to it, so I guess this is a good reminder to come back to it. Um, and I guess to maybe explain for our audience, the Women's Health Protection Act is a bill that is designed to repeal essentially every pro-life law that exists at the state level. Um, things like ultrasound requirements, um, laws that mandate that women have a reflection period um, to, to think about this decision, various informed consent requirements to give women information about health risks about abortion, um, also exempts itself from the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So if you um, have a, a claim about um, this in the religious context, you would not be able to raise a religious freedom claim. So brief summary of that bill there, and I've got a report on heritage.org that dives into it more. Um, but, but can you talk about the Women's Health Protection Act and how it ties in to these reliance interest arguments? Because I, I believe the, the bill and its findings actually talks about um, some of these claims that your amicus brief disproves. I actually had the opportunity to testify in a congressional committee against the Women's Health Protection Act in an earlier version. And it is the most radical abortion law that this country has ever seen, more radical even than Roe v. Wade at its worst. Um, before Planned Parenthood versus Casey. It's also the most radical abortion bill probably in the world, although the Chinese, uh, under their one-child policy, 
certainly are alleged to have engaged in forced abortions, and it does not protect a forced abortion. But it would, as you say, uh, make it impossible for states to impose reasonable limits that there is broad uh, support for, things like um, when a minor girl seeks an abortion, her parents having to be a part of that conversation. Uh, things like physician-only requirements for abortion so that you don't have your LPN uh, doing abortion, as was the case in uh, Gosnell, Dr. Gosnell's clinic in Philadelphia, which basically was a chop shop. Um, and so it is a very radical piece of legislation. Um, I am optimistic that it will not pass through the Senate. Um, but it is aimed at uh, perpetuating the abortion industry uh, in this country. It's a sort of amazing protection that uh, we certainly don't give to the healthcare industry in general. It's not the sort of protection we give to um, any other industry that is critical to national security, things like our energy industry. Um, it, is, it is really quite uh, breathtaking in its scope and its animosity toward unborn human life. And I think to, to maybe close things out here, because I want to be respectful of everyone's time, um, I'll maybe just end with, with pointing out that this, this Women's Health Protection Act that's passed in the House um, and is now before the Senate, this extreme abortion bill, um, the very opening finding of the bill, the very, very first premise laying out um, its justification says that abortion is, quote, central to people's ability to participate equally in the economic and social life of the United States, um, which, of course, your amicus brief disproves um, and, and really pushes back on that and provides the data. Um, I, I do want to make just one final observation as we close here. Um, that bill used to make the claim that abortion was central to women's ability to participate equally in society. And they changed it this year to say people's ability. And of course, this is part of the larger effort um, with a certain ideology to really erase women um, entirely. Um, and maybe that's a, a conversation for another day. But I think a, a final observation here in our conversation is just to note that it's really amazing that we've gone from the court and abortion advocates making the claim that abortion is central to women's success and advancement in society, which is not true. Um, we've now arrived at a point where we can't even say that it has helped women. The word women has to be erased from that conversation. And it, it's a really sad state of affairs indeed. And I think that, um, so many people are going to, to benefit from reading the brief that you and these hundreds of women, um, professionals, scholars, organizations have submitted to the Supreme Court. Um, and just to remind our audience, those oral arguments are scheduled to happen the morning of December 1st. And then, of course, it will be quite a few months before we get a decision there, um, in all li likelihood, probably not until the summer of 2022. So um, there will be 
lots of time for us to continue having these conversations. Um, but in the meantime, Teresa, I want to thank you so, so much for being with us here today. Um, I think this has been a really illuminating discussion, and I encourage all of our attendees to go and read that amicus brief because it is well worth your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Have a good day.